2: Welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind. Your host, Nora Gedgaudis, is here to take you on a fun-filled and informational journey through the mind and your body with a focus on neurofeedback and healthy nutrition and what it can do for you, your family, and friends. Now, here's your host, Nora Gedgaudis.
0: Well, good Wednesday morning to all of you. I'm Nora Gedgaudis, of course, and I want to welcome you to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, your unpasteurized and unhomogenized source for life-changing and cutting-edge information that you just might not find anywhere else. Well, I am especially pleased uh, to be here today. In fact, a little bit giddy. Um, Some time ago, I came across a little-known documentary that really completely blew my socks off. And it isn't a fancy or big-budget production, but its irrefutable message is nothing short of revolutionary. It's called My Big Fat Diet, and it just might change everything you ever thought you knew about weight loss and what it means to eat a healthy diet. The proof, of course, is in the pudding, right? And the pudding here is a small town in the British Columbia, uh, British Columbia's Vancouver Island, called Alert Bay, where 100 Native residents participated in a dietary study for one year where over 1,200 pounds of collective excess fat weight was lost and the health of the town's participants radically improved. Now, the dietary approach, a very low carbohydrate, moderate protein, and high fat diet. Sound familiar to any of you who listen to this show? Well, the inspired architect of this project was a medical doctor from northern Alberta named Dr. J. Wardman, who I will be introducing to you Uh, momentarily here. Of course, we're all incredibly fortunate that he so graciously accepted the invitation to be here today. listeners of this show and those of you who have read my book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, are not strangers to the idea that a low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, and high-percentage-fat diet can really make a positively remarkable difference in the health and well-being of almost anyone. Now, these are truly you know, primal foundational principles, but unfortunately, this way of eating, which is well known to all of all of our ancestors, but forgotten in modern times, has been shrouded in misinformation, distorted by conventional dogma and twisted upside down by health agencies. Now the food pyramid literally has it backwards in so many ways, but the myths that have driven this catastrophic health policy still seem to prevail. Now, most MDs um, really bow unquestioningly to this golden calf, but at least one (laughs) has had the boldness and wisdom to expose a different paradigm. Dr. Jay Wortman is a recognized authority on low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets for the treatment of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. He was also a national program specialist in HIV-AIDS, where he developed the aboriginal component of the National AIDS Strategy. Uh, he also developed a concept for the Dr. Peter AIDS Diary, a weekly television appearance by a young physician who is dying of AIDS, which resulted in an actual Academy Award nomination. And I haven't seen this thing, but I definitely plan to look it up. Um, Dr. Wartman has also served in senior management positions in the First Nations and Inuit Health Branch of Health Canada, where he's currently the senior medical advisor he recently completed a 2-year research interchange at the UBC Faculty of Medicine where he studied the role of traditional diet in the prevention and treatment of obesity, metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes in First Nations. In 2003, Jay Wortman was awarded the National Aboriginal Achievement Award for Medicine, well deserved no doubt. I am very pleased and deeply honored to welcome Dr. Jay Wortman to this show. Welcome, Jay.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, It's very nice to be here.
0: I, you know, I'm like a little kid in a candy store. I'm (laughs) just absolutely tickled to death to have you here. Uh, My Big Fat Diet has been rather aptly described uh, by somebody, I don't know who, but uh, as supersize me meets northern exposure, which I love that description. Uh, What was it that inspired you to take this dietary research project and put it on film in the first
3: place? I have uh, had, always had good contacts in the media I, I, throughout my career, which has been mainly in public health, I've come to appreciate how, how important the various media are in conveying health messages, that most people get their health information yes. from the media, probably more so than from their own doctors. So I've always uh, been interested in that and, and, and the Dr. Peter example that you mentioned is a good example of that where a, a media project uh, was very successful here in uh, reducing fear and uh, homophobia around the AIDS epidemic. And uh, so I've always had good contacts in the media and people, my media friends are always asking me, what are you up to now? Yeah. Sort of thing and uh, that's what happened here. Uh, uh, a news uh, documentary producer that I know was aware of my plans to do this study, so she she was able to arrange to uh, to uh, uh, for the national broadcaster here uh, uh, follow the the study for about a twelve month period and produce the documentary.
0: yeah, it was incredibly well done it really was it was a simple piece it wasn't you know lots of bells and whistles and exploding things and whatever. But, um, the, they did such an extraordinary job of bringing the human element into it. It wasn't just sort of like a clinical, well, here's what we did and here's what came out of it piece. You became emotionally, uh,
3: you know, involved with the participants. I, I agree. You know, I, I, Obviously, I'm a little biased because I'm the the star of the show. But of course, I, it, it has shelf life. You never get tired of watching it because yep. it works on so many levels. It's it's about the individuals and their personal struggles. It's about the community and how it pulled together. And then it it exposes the the wonderful charm of that little town and the, oh. and the the gorgeous geographical space. Uh, well,
0: yeah, talk about a in tra- a travel log for that area too i mean the, the surroundings couldn't well, be any more beautiful. that is like a dream destination for me yeah,
3: yeah. and it's and it's an uplifting story too so it yeah.
0: it, it really is um and, and but you know it wasn't all uh well it, you know no pun intended, but it wasn't all sort of sugar coated i mean it was um you know, there, people had their ups and their downs with this whole thing, and it, it, it laid everything bare and, and uh, was an incredibly honest, I think, portrayal of what this whole
3: journey was like for
0: these people.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was. And, you know, it, it, it also is, um, I think, one of the reasons it resonates so much, people really enjoy it, is because it's a positive story about people for whom most of the time we see negative stories told. Ah, yes, true mhm yeah, um, or you know
0: so often so many people uh, walking around will see somebody who's overweight and immediately you know cast judgments yeah and an aspersions on on that individual simply because of the way they look without really you know thinking about um how they might have gotten that way or who they might be underneath all of that, and um. You know, every one of these people, uh, you know, in this documentary, is a completely, fully dimensional, uh, warm, wonderful human being. You just want to hug.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I've I've heard those kind of comments. People, people uh, really get to know them and understand their personal struggles. Yeah, and and uh, they the, the amount of sympathy or empathy that that you get. Watching this is, is amazing, uh, you know, and, and I, I think you're right that, you know, overweight uh, people, obviously overweight people, are one of the few people that we can still, you know, make fun of. Yeah, it's still one of the accepted <laughs> forms of discrimination, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, it's a blame-the-victim kind of environment we're in. And, and I also, this is how I characterize the current approach. The current thinking about obesity is actually a blame-the-victim approach. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I agree, and it really ought to be a blame the feedlot food pyramid kind of approach. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Um, so can you maybe describe, because uh, I'm guessing that a lot of the people listening haven't really seen this, um, can you perhaps describe the premise of the documentary in more detail to our listeners, kind of spell it out?
3: Well, I, uh, I was interested in the relationship between diet and diabetes, and you know obesity, and diabetes go hand in hand, and um, I was particularly interested in the fact that in the area here where I live on the coast of British Columbia, the traditional diet here in the past, before uh, European contact, was a very high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, yeah. and that we know that people here in the past did not have chronic disease, and that the rise of obesity and diabetes in this population was a very recent development, just in the last few decades. And uh, when you look at how the diet has changed from a very healthy, uh, high-fat, moderate protein, low-carb diet consisting of traditional foods, a lot of which are fish and and seafood, and what people eat today, um, what I did was I connected the dots from that that observation to modern research that's being done on uh, Atkins-type diets, you know, mm-hmm. low-carb, high-fat, modern diets in the general population. And there have been some good studies done now, mostly in the U.S. So I connected the dots here. You know, here's a population that's suffering terribly from these chronic diseases. They're eating a terrible modern, you know, standard American diet with loaded, loaded up with junk food. And in the, you know, fairly recent past, they had no chronic disease and they were eating a high-fat, low-carb diet. And now we have these studies showing that if you take people with those metabolic problems and put them on a high-fat, low-carb diet, you correct the metabolic problems. So I connected those dots and I went to this community and I said, here's an idea. Maybe in... in, And the other thing I just comment is that... There's a cultural revival going on in these communities right now. It's been happening over you know, the last 20, 30 years where yeah. they're really rebuilding their, their cultural infrastructure. Wonderful, and, wonderful thing to see. Yeah, recognizing the past and, and reestablishing traditions and the art and so on as part of that. And what I did was I went to them and I said, look, there's one thing you've overlooked here in your cultural renaissance. Mm-hmm. Traditional foods are important. Everybody agrees to that, but you've overlooked traditional diet. In other words, if you're eating salmon and all these wonderful foods, but you're also eating pop and chips and cake. Fry bread and whatever. Yeah, you're not actually eating a traditional diet. And maybe that's something that we need to look at. And so the the concept of what I wanted to do resonated very strongly. People understood it right away. Yeah. And I think it also helped them embrace the idea as we went forward. So what we did was we... We set up an academic uh, research project there, uh, you know, with the usual ethical approvals and university-based researchers involved and so on. And we recruited people there to eat a diet that consisted of their traditional foods, all their traditional foods, plus market foods that had similar macronutrient values. So basically it was a low-carb diet, Not, not too different from perhaps the beginning part of an Atkins diet, the induction part of an Atkins diet, which is very low in carb. Right. So that's what we did. We recruited people into the study, and we supported them and, and guided them along as they followed this diet.
0: And it was, a, it was literally you were trying to put together a statistically significant number, which yes. had to be close to 100 residents, right?
3: Yes. If you need a certain number to, to get statistical power in a study like that. Right. So we, we tried to recruit about 100 people. And I think probably during in the duration of the study, about sixty of them actually stuck with it.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah,
3: and and that gave us. I mean, the individual improvements are so big that that gives you statistical power, even though the numbers strong. Even though the
0: numbers fell off.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, we're
0: going to take a very uh, short uh, commercial break here, and so when we come back, we're going to talk about exactly what happened in the study and what. Uh, and what was found out, and, uh, this is just, uh, just an incredibly amazing story. So, please stick around. I'm talking today with Dr. Jay Wartman from My Big Fat Diet. My name is Nora Gagautis, and this is Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We will be back in just a minute.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Getgoudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Edgoudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com.
4: Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. Your life, your
1: health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora.
0: Welcome back to the show. We're here today with Dr. Jay Wartman, who is a physician from northern uh, Canada. Uh, well, originally from northern uh, Alberta, and he was the architect of a wonderful, wonderful video called My Big Fat Diet, uh, architect of a study in a small town in northern Northern Vancouver Island where 100 residents took part in a dietary study where they eliminated uh, carbohydrates, uh, moderated their protein, and ate a relatively high-fat diet. And uh, we just kind of got, you know, through sort of the general layout of, uh, of what you intended to do with the study. Uh, one question I have is what made you do this in Alert Bay, which I actually think was a rather brilliant move on your part, but I'm curious to hear
3: why you chose that community.
1: Initially,
3: well, initially our plan was to have two communities oh. to, get, to, to increase the number, you know, to make sure we got enough subjects. And I, I needed a community that was somewhat self-contained. So being, it was on a tiny island, uh, this community. It's a fairly small island with about, a 1500, about 1,500 people, Native and non-Native, living on it. And they get most of their health services from one clinic. So those were practical considerations yeah. that m- made me think it would be easier to do a study of this kind there. And we also approached people on another island further north in the Queen Charlottes Oh, but uh, we had difficulties uh, getting that one uh, un- underway, and, it, and as we started in Alert Bay, we realized that we were going to get uh, significantly more people than we first thought involved. So we, we abandoned the idea of two sites and just focused on that one.
0: Uh, the people in the Queen Charlotte's lost out. Um-
3: I, it, yeah, a lot of people were disappointed. That, that didn't go ahead, and I still feel a, somewhat of an obligation to them to, to go up there and do something with them. So that may happen at some
0: point. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I I wouldn't mind tagging along. Actually, that's uh, uh, Queen Charlotte's. For some reason, is my fantasy destination, so
3: it's one of those special places in the yeah. world. you know every time I get yeah. off the plane up there, I just exhale, you know <laughs> it's just it's got a wonderful feeling to it.
0: It's supposedly the largest repository of human archaeological uh, remains anywhere. well, uh, on the North American continent, I've been told
3: yeah, it, it was one of those unique places that didn't get covered by ice in the yeah. last ice age, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, so they have some unique flora and fauna there. Oh, oh, well, see, as if I thought I
0: would want to go there any more than I already do. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, with all of the changes that we saw, and I, I definitely want to talk about all of these changes that, that you were seeing in these populations. Clearly, people really lost weight. They were able to get off medications and all of that. I'm cu- one thing that wasn't talked about much is I'm curious as to whether you also noted changes in issues in the community surrounding mental health.
3: Yes, uh, that's a very good point. And, you know, it's interesting. We didn't anticipate that, so we didn't have the uh, the study oriented to, to gather data that would have uh, demonstrated that. But it soon became apparent that there was a significant mental health impact mm-hmm. individually and and overall in the community. and. Outside observers, people not even necessarily aware there was a study underway, made comments about that. You got a glimpse of it in the video because the the manager of the local grocery store was unaware we were doing the study, but she started to notice things different. Things were different. And um, I've been exploring this a little bit now, and I think there's something there uh, that's related to this diet. and and mental health and my own my own observation actually is that I found that when I started doing this diet myself my uh, my threshold for stress changed yep. I found I was better able to cope with stress and my you know my tendency to argue with my wife went away you know things like that you <laughs> I'm know? Not sure he's got to love that <laughs> well, there was a palpable change in things uh, and, and so I think this needs to be investigated I've been Corresponding with a with a psychiatrist uh, an academic psychiatrist on this and hopefully we're going to be able to do a study on that sometimes
0: it would be wonderful it'd be a great uh, subject for another film so many people fail to make that connection between what they eat and how they feel and 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 including how they feel in uh, in the scope of their total health and how they perceive their total health i've had I, I work with the brain in, in my personal mm-hmm. practice and I do brain training, I do neurofeedback, um, and I work with people who have all sorts of uh, symptoms all of the time, and um, sort of uh, helping them train their brains into a place of better self-regulation. And, of course, I'm fond of saying that, you know, all the best brain training in the world, of course, is never going to put a nutrient there that's not there and or take away some offending substance that doesn't belong there. The brain and the body need certain raw materials in order to function, period. Uh, and so I, I usually end approaching the subject of diet with a lot of my clients and um, they'll be, I'll get comments like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really healthy, you know, I, I, don't, I never get sick and I've never been in the hospital and this and that and the other thing. But it's like, well, look at this, you're, you're anxious, you're depressed, you can't focus, you can't sleep, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and they have difficulty making that connection.
3: You you know, one of the things that happened in the study was people started talking about, they they used uh, descriptions like, you know, the fog lifted. Mm -hmm. You know, I suddenly had clarity in my thinking. Comments like that were made. Yes. that, That happened fairly quickly, like within a few days of starting the diet. Yeah. People noticed that kind of change. And this is a fascinating area because, I mean, you have to consider that the brain is made out of fat it sure is so it's fat and it's certain kinds of fats you know the omega-3s for instance are important there and and also we also are understanding now that oxidative stress is a big problem not just in the brain but throughout the body that is linked to a high carbohydrate diet exactly that oxidative stress is a condition that seems to be predicated on burning glucose more than anything else. I completely agree with you. And in the brain, um, you're probably familiar with the use of a high-fat ketogenic diet for epilepsy. Absolutely. And there was a study published three or three years ago, or so ago now that worked out the mechanism, which showed that it was the reduction in oxidative stress uh-huh. in the neurons by switching from glucose to ketones. Yep that reduced the excitability of the neurons and, and calmed the tendency to have epileptic seizures. Yep, which makes
0: so much sense. And, of course, you, know, when you, when you when you're burning glucose, you have blood sugar rollicking up and down, which yes. is, of course, terribly destabilizing it also is. for the brain.
3: But there are other macro effects, I agree. And what is fascinating about that is that everything that happens in the brain is a chemical reaction of some kind. Yes. Every thought, every mood, every emotion, everything that goes on in the brain is involves chemistry. And here's a major perturbation in the chemical milieu, this oxidative stress that is corrected when you stop taking when you stop burning glucose. Yeah. So it's gotta have impacts you know, beyond just fixing epilepsy in these in these unfortunate children that have this problem.
0: You know, I'm, I'm practically dabbing tears from my eyes hearing you talk about this because it is a very rare thing to hear a physician talk about uh, people needing to stop burning glucose uh, as a primary source of fuel, and um, because of course the this, this standard mantra is that we require glucose. Yeah. Uh, in order for our brain to function, in order for our organs to function. I maintain yeah. that, the only, that that's only true conditionally. It's true if we have adapted ourselves metabolically to depending on glucose as that primary
3: source of fuel, but that's not the only option. No, in fact, I, the that's evidence suggests that the brain actually functions more efficiently on ketones. Yes. And that brain that the central nervous system... Can burn uh, can get about eighty five percent of its energy from ketones, and the remaining fifteen percent, the liver can make that. You don't need to eat it. Right. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, you know confusion in the general population out there about that. People think you need absolutely need to have glucose. Not
0: glucose. just in the general population, but I mean in, in the have, in the conventional medical community, they're they're true. taught, and neurologists are taught, yeah. you have to have glucose.
3: Yeah, it's true. It's unfortunate.
0: It it's, it's it, it truly is. Um, you know, the brain, of course, is so vulnerable to that oxidative stress you're talking about, and, of course, it doesn't respond to insulin much, so it's that much more vulnerable to uh, to the glycating and, and oxidative effects of, of glucose. Yeah. And uh, the higher the blood sugar, um, obviously, the faster your brain deteriorates. Yeah. It's how we age.
3: Yeah. And... Um, and- and if you, another view of this is if you look at the epidemiology of uh, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and uh, affective disorder, major depression, mm-hmm. there's a huge overlap. Yes. And there's a, a, a head of the mood disorder clinic at the University of Toronto, a fellow named Roger McIntyre, has published articles now where he's arguing that depression is actually part of metabolic syndrome.
0: Oh, how interesting! I had not yeah. heard that.
3: Yeah, so that fits with my observation that it, it everything surprise. everything related to metabolic syndrome gets better if you eat a low carb, high fat diet. So depression should get better as well. Yeah, and and the, and we saw that in, in the study where people, in fact, you know, there, when the study when the when the documentary was finished, the day before it was broadcast on national television, the producers went. To alert bay and showed it to the community to give them an advanced view of it and it was in a gymnasium with a you know big screen projector there and a bunch of people and after it was over everybody took turns getting up and telling about their experience either with the study or what they observed to happen to other people and a common theme about that was how much happier people were yeah yeah people that had you know family dysfunction and things things got better after they got involved in the study. So it was really quite fascinating. It needs to be further investigated.
0: It does. Well, and, and you know, part of eliminating uh, the sugar, too, has to do with, of course, eliminating things like gluten, which is a whole separate subject that I don't know if we want to broach overly <laughs> here. But we know that, of course, that gluten can have catastrophic effects on individuals who, well, you know, who are, who, well, on, on so many people actually. I just want to say particular individuals who are sensitive to it, but there's so many people that are sensitive to it that. I,
3: I actually think we have an epidemic of subclinical gluten intolerance. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. It, most, it's, it, most people think that they're fine, but when they stop eating it, they get better and they don't realize they had a problem until they do that.
0: Right, and even if they don't improve necessarily, even if all their symptoms don't go away when they eliminate gluten, in my mind, they've eliminated one obstacle yeah. <laughs> toward their improvement that is, I think, always a good obstacle to remove from mm-hmm. the path. Well, we're having to take another break here, unfortunately, so... Um, but we have a lot more to go, so please, everybody, stick around. We're talking with Dr. Jay Wortman here from My Big Fat Diet. My name is Nora Gadgoudis. You are listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, and we will be back in just a moment.
1: Your life, your health, your network.
2: NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora gitt Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended. A jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host says, if you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgoudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com.
4: Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com.
1: The Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two
3: well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the
2: Voice America Channel.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: you're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora.
0: Well, Welcome back to the show. Uh, We're here today with uh, Dr. Jay Wardman from a from a documentary called My Big Fat Diet, which I want you all to run out and, and purchase and, and watch. Uh, and you're going to want to watch it multiple times because, as, as Jay mentioned, and I will attest to you, just don't get tired of it. Um, well, Jay, you know, you yourself, um, and, you know, I wanted to kind of to talk about this, and we, talked, we touched upon it briefly on the break here. Um, you know, as a physician, as a classically trained physician, it's a little unusual to hear a doctor talking, and on MD, talking about diet. This is something that typically doesn't happen unless you have a doctor who's saying, now make sure that, you know, you eat low cholesterol, low fat, and, uh, you know, eat enough eat enough grains and complex carbs and all that sort of a thing. Um, but you yourself have, or had anyway, uh, type 2 diabetes. You were diagnosed with that, which is what essentially brought you to this focus in the first place. But as a medical doctor, what actually inspired you to look at diet instead of, say, a more pharmacological solution to this problem? Is it because of your native background at all?
3: Well, it was one of those serendipitous things, really. Uh, 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 Let me just tell you that when I developed type 2 diabetes, I was working in an administrative job. I had a, a senior position in the health uh Health Canada uh, with a lot of administrative responsibility, so I wasn't doing any clinical work at the time and uh I let the symptoms creep up on me. I was obviously in denial in re- retrospect yeah. and uh when I discovered that I had it it was a really it was shocking you know i because I know about it and I, I you know I actually did a lot of extra training in diabetes when I was younger and i I was the camp doctor at a diabetes children's camp for four years, so i knew I knew my diabetes and um and so it shouldn't have happened, but it did and it happened just when my my first little son was two years old, and that made it doubly you know shocking to me because I know what it does to life expectancy and you know complications that can happen and so on it increases your risk of cardiovascular death and you know all this stuff right and uh Laid on top of that is my own somewhat of a, an aversion to taking medication. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I, probably one of the reasons I drifted out of clinical practice is I don't really like taking drugs myself, and I don't really like giving them to other people. Sure. So um, when this happened, I decided I needed a little time to review the, the current science on diabetes to decide how I was going to manage this, You know, essentially which drug I was going to take and how I was going to approach this. And to do that, I, I wanted to buy a little time, so I decided to stop eating anything that raised my blood sugar. So I knew enough about diabetes to know that that meant no starch or sugar. Okay. And, and well, that it wasn't isn't
0: necessarily what's preached, though. I mean, if no. you read diabetic magazines and things, no. they're filled with cakes and pies. Yeah. And...
3: Absolutely. No, this was contrary to everything I'd been taught and how I'd managed people in the past myself. Okay. But I knew that it would prevent my blood sugar from going higher while I was spending a few days going and in, diving into the, to the literature and updating myself. But what happened was that from the moment I stopped eating starch and sugar, I started to get better yeah. and dramatically better. I mean, it, virtually overnight, my blood sugar corrected. My symptoms went away. I started losing weight. I lost about a pound a day for almost a month. Wow. And uh, I felt better. You know, I felt so much better that I became... Very intrigued with what was going on. Why? Why was this happening? What? Why? How? Why? How could this make me so much better and not be part of the what I'd been taught? You know. So I dived into the the science in this and uh, discovered that people were actually looking at this. That there was some literature out there, and uh, and also that Doctor Atkins had figured this out. <laughs> Yeah, and it was my wife who said, "You're on the Atkins diet, you dummy." You know, <laughs> and, and and sure enough, you know, I looked at one of his books, and yeah, th- this was basically what I was doing. And it and and I've come to understand now that in his clinic in New York, he actually managed diabetics that way uh, over many many years. Yeah. Um, so it, it all just happened kind of by chance, but once I understood the benefits of it. I I couldn't let it go. I had to understand it. I had to explore the science, and eventually ended up uh, connecting with the researchers that do this kind of work, and uh, some of the clinicians that use this in their practices, and um, got involved in doing the research myself. Yeah. And uh, I've stuck to the diet for seven and a half years now, and it maintains my my metabolic markers remain normal as long as I don't eat carbohydrates.
0: Right. And No, you look great. I, mean, I understand a lot of this gets equated with Atkins' approach to diet, um, you know, with what you did with this group in, in Alert Bay. and But I don't actually s- s- quite see it that way because Robert Atkins never really put any limits on protein, for instance. Um, the way he presented it, too, you know, a hot dog was not really any different from a grass-fed steak. And, and later in life, he began talking more about organics and better quality foods and on processed foods but what you're what you're really presenting here is more of a native diet based on the foods at least from a macronutrient standpoint that we were all really designed to eat i know too that atkins also focused for my taste a bit too much i think on carb substitutes you know a lot of which
3: were really highly processed and and soy based yeah yeah and and i you know i i think in fairness, though, the Atkins diet evolved over time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware. There's a new book that just came out. I, I heard about that. Yeah.
0: I haven't had a chance to look at it. I know that toward the end of his life, he began to adopt a slightly
3: more, you know, evolved point of view about it. Yeah. But um, he, but there, uh, you know, the 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 new book is written by two of the people that collaborated with me on this study, and there uh, there are three authors. They're academic uh, uh, nutritional science. Investigators, and I—I I, I just started reading it, but I anticipate it'll be—it'll take it to the next level, closer to what we were actually doing in the study, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. But this, you know, this area has evolved. Obviously, I think we certainly understand things now that weren't apparent in '72, for instance, when Atkins published his first book. The the vegetable oils, the the problems that you encounter yeah. from too much omega-6 from the exactly. vegetable oils is is obvious to us now, or it should be, and apparently it's not obvious to everyone. No. It's still part of the general recommendation for, for fats. And, and the, the, the need to, one of the interesting things that, that we, f- we knew about during the study, and, and I think is in this new book, is the need to eat salt mm-hmm. when you're doing okay. a very low-carb diet. Yes. Most people don't know that. And uh, it's the source of uh, the, the side effects that people commonly associate with low-carb constipation, for instance. Oh, uh, yes. This, this is a common complaint with low-carb diets, and it turns out it's not because you're avoiding fiber. Most people eat a lot of fiber on right. a low-carb diet. It's because your kidneys will excrete salt when you yep. stop eating carbohydrates.
0: Oh, uh, yes.
3: Yeah. And okay. you have to replace that salt. Yep. And, uh, and, the, and the other thing, of course, is when you go on a low-carb diet, you stop eating all that junk food that is full of salt as well. yep. And uh, people are, are realizing that now, and uh, uh, adding some salt back into your diet when you're eating low carb gets rid of all the virtually all the uh, adverse things associated with low yeah. carb diet.
0: And I'm particularly fond of, of advocating some of these these full spectrum salts that um, you know, like Celtic like sea salts, salt. salts and Himalayan yeah. sea salts that yeah. contain the full complement of of elements and and whatnot, mm-hmm. and isn't just like refined the way refined sugar is, you know, yeah. with refined salt.
3: Yeah, we keep uh, sea salt in the coverage here.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things uh, there there was one uh, man in the film. Uh, his name uh, was was Art Dick, and I guess he was the uh, the tribal chief. Had a particularly, uh, I think, uh, moving story. Um, but he'd in the past suffered issues uh, surrounding alcoholism, uh, and I can't help but wonder—certainly uh, from my own perspective—how much easier his recovery from alcoholism would have been if this diet had been introduced to him first. Um, I've personally seen several cases of alcoholism fall away literally once sugar and starch leave the diet altogether, and a more primarily fat-burning metabolism, uh, you know, kicks in. And I, I of course, personally see alcoholism as fundamentally a blood sugar issue. And at one point, Art even equated both carb and alcohol addictions, but I doubt that he necessarily made the connection that he was talking about uh,
3: what I see is the same thing. It's another area that needs to be explored more. Are you familiar with the work of Bart Hoibel at Princeton? No. He's been investigating the addictive qualities of sugar, Yes. and ha- has, I think, made the case. He's published articles on this. He's done studies, mainly with rodents, where I think he's made a convincing enough case now that it's obvi- it should be obvious that sugar is an addictive uh, substance. And one of the interesting things that he finds in his research is that if very young rats or mice are exposed to a lot of sugar, that that sets them up to choose other addictive substances later in life, like alcohol or cocaine, things like that.
0: Which makes, of course, perfect
3: sense. And of yeah. course,
0: when it comes to you know, uh, grains, which of course are, are another source mm-hmm. of, you know, of sugar, although people don't necessarily think of it that way, um, you also have exorphins and other yes. compounds that also have their addictive qualities. So mm-hmm. there's quite a bit throughout the carbohydrate kingdom that can draw people in and make them very, very, make it very, very difficult for them at least initially, to uh, relinquish, uh, relinquish those addictions. Uh, but once they do, and, and you know, once you've sort of adopted a, a more uh, primarily
3: fat-burning metabolism, mm-hmm. they really kind of become uninteresting to you. I, you know, when I stopped eating carbohydrates, it was an abrupt thing. I stopped one day and that was it. I went through what seemed to me, for all intents and purposes, like a drug withdrawal in the initial time that I did this. Yes. And I've observed that in other people as well. I think that there is something there in terms of the addictive quality of carbohydrate foods, whether it's sugar by itself or whether it's other carbs that, that uh, produce glu- you know, result in glucose uh, surges in your system. Um, it's not clear to me, but for, for many people there is clearly an addictive quality to this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we're having to take another break here, uh, our last break. So uh, please stick around. And, uh, and all of you, uh, we're here with Dr. Jay Wortman talking about my big fat diet. And I am Noraget Goudis. You're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. Please don't go away. We will be right back.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Getgautis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says if you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book, Go Beyond the Low-Carb and Paleo Diet to Discover the Ultimate Key to Health, a Better Brain, Weight Loss, Better Mood, and a Longer Life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind today. And sign up for Nora Gedgoudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com tuned in to primal body primal mind radio with host nora ged got a question for nora about today's show the phone lines are open now at one 472 5792 toll free 1-866-472-5792 now back to our show here's nora
0: show. we're here with dr jay Wortman uh, talking about my big fat diet and um I want to get you to summarize quickly because I don't think we've really clarified this. Uh, We've alluded to it um, all over the place. But, uh, you know, you started out with 100 participants in this study in Alert Bay. And uh, over a break at one point you told me that maybe about uh, 60 people or so uh, actually ended up completing uh, the study. Uh, But can you kind of summarize for us in general what the results were, of this group?
3: Um, Sure. Now, uh, it's interesting. Our results were completely consistent with what other researchers have found in general population, applying a very low-carb, high-fat diet to a general population. People lost a significant amount of weight. They improved their cholesterols. And um, for the diabetics, uh, they improve their diabetes control, their blood sugar control, and while at the same time getting off their medications. And this, you know, as a, as a classically trained physician, this sort of thing doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's right. quite unusual. Yeah. But having worked in this area now for a while and associated with other people that are doing this research, this is what you commonly see in people with metabolic problems, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, is they get better. And it's quite, quite interesting because it's, for all intents and purposes, it looks like a food intolerance, that yeah. these people with these metabolic problems, if they stop eating carbohydrate foods, everything gets better. Their blood pressure, their blood sugar, their weight, their cholesterol, everything gets better. Yep. And if they start eating the foods again, the problems return.
0: I yeah, to consider with this population too, uh, being a, a largely native community, yeah. <clears throat> you know how much less adapted these people are. I mean, they are nearly hundred percent hunter gatherers um, physiologically, yeah. of course we all are, but they're just that much more. Uh, you know, they're you know modern day foods are that much newer to this population.
3: I, there is an aspect there that's interesting that, that people that ha, has, have, don't have a long history of eating a grain-based, high-carb diet seem to be more vulnerable to these problems. Yes. But interestingly now, when I, I go to the big scientific meetings on metabolic syndrome and diabetes and so on, it's, it's interesting that the Middle Eastern countries now are leading the way in terms of problems with metabolic syndrome, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Well, surprise. So diet change... <laughs> around the world is a big problem. It is. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it really is. Um, now, I'm
0: curious, and I'm sure everybody else is too, have you had the chance to follow up on how these people in Alert Bay are doing since the study ended? Are people there continuing to eat this way?
3: I, I spoke to the uh, local physician about this recently, and he, his, he said we, we did the study for 12 months. We followed people for 12 months. And we didn't have a built-in capacity to go back and and measure things. So I'm just reporting anecdotally now. I understand. And the the local physician said he he guesstimated about 25% of the people in the study had been sticking to the diet. Okay. And that the ripple effect into the community, which, by the way, was enormous at the beginning. It impacted many, many more people than the 100 people that signed up. He said there was still an enduring Affect community-wide in terms of improvements in what people were eating.
0: That's wonderful, I mean, and I think there was something a little bit uh, brilliant about um, about actually doing this study in such a small community, um, because what you have is sort of a built-in, you know, uh, support system yeah. in that kind of environment. You have you know people that are basically sort of bouncing off each other and And supporting each other, and uh, uh, there was something I think uh, that had to be a powerful catalyst for the you know large scale success
3: of that study. Yeah, there was a a sense of community support, community interest, community support for what we were doing, and I think that helped people. And there was a lot of spontaneous gatherings during this time, and. In that community being a West Coast First Nations community, the potlatches are a big part of the community culture. Yeah. They have these big feasts, you know, for you know, several many times a year in their in their big house. And what happened was at the potlatches they, they during the feasting times, they would have special area of tables for the people on the study. Which was quite interesting.
0: Oh, yeah, wow. So there was a
3: real sense of community support of what was going on. Yeah,
0: you could, it was palpable
3: yeah.
0: in the film. Well, rumor has it that you are possibly doing another possibly uh, similar study stateside, um, although I don't really know much about it. Do you care to share
3: um, what you're up to? Well, I'm working on a on a few things right now. None of which have actually started recruiting subjects. But I'm not. I don't have one planned in the U.S. I'm I network with some of the U.S. researchers who are oh, okay. doing studies down there, and I'm always looking for opportunities to do more. But the the studies I'm working on right now are. We're looking at one in children with metabolic syndrome right now, and in Vancouver. And we're also looking at uh, working in a family practice setting. To see what, what we can achieve in, a, in the resource constraints of a you know, conventional family practice. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh,
0: well, wonderful. Anything that you're into, um, I'm interested in hearing about. I'm also curious, though, I think I know the answer to this, uh, about exercise. Now, did exercise play a role in this study at all? Or, as I'm sort of guessing, was the point really to isolate the effects of diet alone on the health of this community? It's a good,
3: it's a really interesting question because. We did not uh, structure any exercise into the study protocol. Mm-hmm. But what we observed is that people spontaneously started exercising more. Ah, yes. And what I think is going on there is this gets a little complicated, so I'll just quickly touch on it. But it looks to me that what the brain does when you're eating a high-carb diet and you develop insulin resistance is the brain begins to think you're starving. Mm -hmm. even though it's the exact opposite. And this is because of interference with leptin signals and so on. Right. And when you stop eating carbohydrates, you correct that problem of the starvation response. And when any animal is starving, it does two things. It seeks food and it conserves energy. Exactly. So my observation is that people who have metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, some insulin resistance, maybe obesity-related, have a hard time mobilizing energy to exercise because their brain is in that starvation response mode and when you take that away by removing carbohydrates suddenly they have energy and they get up and they start doing things and we had one old fellow in the study, he was in his 70s, he was retired he'd been a carpenter and he lost enormous amount of weight got off all his medications and had so much energy he went back to work as a carpenter he, oh, said, wow. he said to me, I, I had so much energy i couldn't stay at home anymore i had to get out <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so. yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. A Story so. a story like that that you hear when people
0: adopt this you know really much more natural way of eating um... that is just uh, it's inspiring stuff you know, jay i deeply honor your work and i especially applaud your inspiration to put it on film so that anyone and everyone can see it and of course should I'm going to continue to recommend my big fat diet to everybody, and I hope uh, to see more of this kind of thing from you in the future. Uh, I think your message is really reaching more and more people, and the day it finally goes mainstream, I think what we are in, the, what we here in the States call the so called healthcare crisis, might just not be so much of a crisis anymore. Yes. So thank you, Jay, for being here. Uh, you also have a blog, right? Can you give our listeners that web address?
3: It's uh, www.drjwartman.com So, D-R-J-A-Y-W-O-R-T-M-A-N.com
0: Wonderful. And, uh, and of course, if people are interested in the movie, they can go to mybigfatdiet.com .net Oh, I'm sorry, .net. I lied. Sorry. Yes. Um, I think they'll find it, though, if, you, if they Google it. Yeah. Um, but for all of you out there, uh, please tune in next week when we're gonna journey back to the brain and how the science of brain training can actually be harnessed for accessing the deepest recesses of the human mind, a sort of mysterious subconscious and even, and even mystical states. I'm going to be welcoming back Dr. Julian Isaacs to discuss this deeply fascinating area of brain science and neurofeedback technology. You're not going to want to miss it. But until then, remember, if it wouldn't look like food to someone wandering around 40,000 years ago with a loincloth and a spear, it's not food for you now either. My name is Nora Gaddis. You've been listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. It's been great to have you here today, and I will talk to you all next week.